did God create Satan? No, we created a phenomenon of evil that becomes bigger than us, possesses us, scoops us up. And you can use a good analogy from, let's say, Hitlerism, where the people of Germany generate this kind of spirit, this evil spirit that then begins to control them. Mm-hmm. And so you see it on a smaller scale in a mob mentality, right? When when a mob gathers, something bigger than the sum of the parts is generated from them. And so maybe in the old days we would have said, well, they're evil, so it called in this evil spirit. And now maybe we're saying, well, really, what is the, the root of this is human sin. We're generating this yeah. evil spirit that takes on a life of its own and then turns on us. But I'm weary and I'm seeing Jesus come, come now, don't delay. What does it mean when we say the word the devil? Insert whatever noun you want to here when you mean that concept. I have no earthly idea. In my training and upbringing in the church, the devil for me was a MacGuffin that was used to propel the narrative of the gospel forward. Instead of love, it was fear. Instead of compassion and grace, it was hate and judgment. And a really big hope that I didn't screw up and somehow just burn for forever, which you'll hear me reference later in the show, is not what I believe anymore. Welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I, as always, am Seth. You are still you, and I'm ready to rock and roll. Couple housekeeping things. Soon, maybe today, really depends on what time you're listening to this, I'm going to refresh the store. A friend of mine said we should call these things the can we wear this at church type of merchandise. And I like that. I'm going to do that. So that's going to be rebranded. But I'm adding in, I realize I don't have anything for the winter or for the fall except for some beanies, which I will say are quite warm. And if you've seen me on social media, I am quite bald. And so those are very helpful to me. But I'm going to refresh some of the stuff, make sure that there's some long sleeve things in there and just make sure that we're all prepared for what appears if the weather today is right is going to be really cold, at least for me. So click there if that is something that interests you. That's another way to support the show. Another reminder as people are listening. So between now and the next two and a half to three weeks, every single dollar made in profit on anything bought in the store, whether that be the new justice taken from the text of Amos shirts or anything in there, all of that money is being combined and gathered and donated to Black Lives Matter. I've reached out to a handful of people that I trust to give me vehicles to give that money to, to hopefully try some small part to affect some form of change or to help fund that change. So consider doing that. If you've been on the fence and you're like, yeah, I want to do that, click that button. That money is not going to the show. It is not going to me. It is literally, hopefully going to do more good than that. I don't want to add any more filler here for you. So I really hope that this conversation does as much for you as it does for me on the concept of Satan, fear, tears, war, and just the gospel with Brad Jersak.
Brad, I'm, I'm going to forego the last name because I think you're like four times on the show now. And so, Brad, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to welcome you back. I'm, I'm terrified for the conversation today because I know very little about it, but, but welcome back. Yeah, welcome to the whole, the whole range of demonology. We know very little about the, you know, what we think we know, we don't necessarily know, but I, I'm glad to be with you and it's good to see you again. In past episodes, I've asked you to go over what's new, a little bit about you. And again, we're going to forego all of that because people, they can just search the feed. They can go back and hear all of that. Um, although today I got an email um, or no, it was tagged. That, that episode that we did like three years ago on atonement still consistently happens to be one of them every, almost every week. Um, it, it, it outperforms most of the other episodes. I don't know why. Yeah, I well, think it's the, the cross is important, right? It's really important. If I could say one thing, yeah. um, right now, Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, and I have just released a brand new little novel. Uh, it's my first work of fiction, and we're excited. It's called The Pastor, A Crisis. And so uh, I did think I should make a plug about that. Do it. People can pre-order it on Amazon. And it is about... It's a composite character of people I've actually known who absolutely crashed on their fundamentalism. And this guy ends up in a psych ward and ends up having to deal with his demons. So I bring the book up in the context of this story just to say, you know, that metaphor we've used, of, you know, wrestling with my demons. Uh, maybe that is a good approach to the whole topic. Yeah. Of, yeah. And so it connects in that way, but I, I hope people will. That's out in a few weeks, right? A few weeks. Correct. Cause I, yeah, I haven't pre-ordered, but I haven't, it hasn't been delivered. So. Right. So there's, there's going to be a hard copy. There's an amazing audio book version of it with voice actors. And then of course, Kindle. So are you one of them? When it finally rolls out, you know, you'll, I think people will love the, the audio version. If are you, are you one of the audio actors? No, no, we had professional actors except for my youngest son, Dominic. Oh, yeah? Um, he stepped into one of the parts as, and he just nailed it. So I'm pretty, that's the funnest part for me. Mm. And of course, co-writing something with Paul Young, what a privilege. Oh yeah. He's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, his, his work has been, I, I really enjoyed his work. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about demons Satan, the Satan. I don't know why putting the word the in front of Satan, but apparently from what I put on Facebook today, doing that changes everything. So and let me just be honest about my ignorance on, on the record here. So growing up in the church, Satan for me was the demonic fallen angel version of Elf on the Shelf, for lack of a better metaphor, that was just going to be like a cosmic snitch and possibly keep me from getting to heaven. It was used as like a fear tactic, like a, um, you know, you're you know, don't give in to Satan or the devil. And I never did anything else with that. Like we didn't talk about it ever. It was just used as a blunt force object to correct behavior. So can we just start at a really basically low level? Like when we say like, are those even all the same things? Demon, Satan, the Satan, the devil. Yeah, let's begin with what we had learned traditionally, mm -hmm. right? And this was the dominant view for much of church history that um, Satan is what we call the fallen angel Lucifer, uh, who is the, you know, the prince of the angels who defied God and fell out of heaven. Um, we typically then also identified Satan with the term the devil um, and also the serpent in the Garden of Eden. 
Satan is a character that appears in, in various stories, like at the prologue of the book of Job, where he appears before God somehow, and he sets up this test of whether Job uh, will pass the test, and, and God bets on Job, right? And then um, he appears again later in the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, then, and then Christ says some odd things about Satan. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Um, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, which is a scary thing to have Jesus call you Satan. And then, um, but it, and then really uh, it all, it, it comes to a convergence because up to then we might have said Satan, the devil and whatever are all the serpent are all different things. Uh, but there is, there is a, a verse in the book of Revelation where it kind of conflates all of those stories. So we grew up with that. And then, and then the idea was, um, in Satan's rebellion, one third of the angels fell with him, and then they become the demons. Which, by the way, is not the origin story of the demons in Jewish literature. So, um, so starting from there, then I also uh, I became very involved in what we call deliverance ministry in the oh, early '90s. And so then we we learned well, you know, we've got to identify demons. Uh, confront them and cast them out, and and so uh, we did deliverance ministry in that way, which was sometimes effective, even if, as a spiritual authority, I'm imposing that model on someone, and then they respond to the model, hmm. um, and I can see elements of that model now at work in the secular realm, with. Uh, psychologists who are externalizing evil in child predators. So it's very interesting that we're kind of coming around to that model again. The question is, is that what the Bible's even talking about? Yeah. You know, when you say imposing a model, you mean imposing a demon onto a person or imposing Satan into a person? Like, what do you, what do you mean when you say imposing a model? No, what I'm saying is that, um, when we look at somebody who is desperate for help mm-hmm. and are struggling in their lives with, let's say, anxiety or obsessive thoughts or whatever, mm-hmm. we bring a worldview to that moment. We bring a model to that moment. And so I, imposing the model might be saying, oh, I'm going to identify what's wrong with you as a demon. Okay. I'm going to get you, I, I'm going to, because I'm a spiritual authority and they are a desperate person, they're going to accept that analysis, and then I can proceed with trying to cast that demon out. The weird thing is sometimes it works. <laughs> and so why did, is it working because, of we're, because that's really what's happening? Or is it working because people in need are responsive to whatever model I bring? It's just which model is the most effective. So the very same person, maybe I would come to them and I'd say, oh, no, these aren't demons. These are dissociative parts of you, and, and we need to deal with that way. Or maybe I'd come with another model, like a Jungian psychology, and say, well, no, this is really your shadow side, and you need to embrace it. And, or maybe I would come and do a gestalt theory and have them sit on two chairs and take turns switching chairs to talk to themselves. And, and all of these are models. And desperate people respond to model. It's just sometimes the demon model actually kind of helps. And sometimes it's super traumatic and destructive. 
and I feel like I'm always wanting to find the best way forward. So I believe the Lord brought me out of, because of the damage I was potentially doing, brought me out of the out of a, a deliverance model into inner healing model and a 12 step mm-hmm. model. And so on the same issues, those seem more effective, much more effective and less there's less risk of damaging the client, so-called. Yeah. One of the questions actually deals that was one of the first questions asked was with your experience in kind of the uh, inner healing and in, in your previous stuff, you know, with, with exorcisms or, or whatever you want to call that. Um, the question was, how has your eschatology changed in the way that you view the spiritual realm as the way that you've kind of switched models to more of an inner healing 12-step type process? The eschatology, like end time stuff? His question, not mine. Yeah, I I wouldn't normally see them as directly connected, but since he asked, <laughs> I have also gone from sort of that old style dispensational mm-hmm. rapture, great tribulation, Armageddon, that kind of that kind of model. Um, I'm now in the Eastern Orthodox Church, where where our vision of the second, the glorious second coming, we still believe in a second coming. We just don't know what it looks like, but our vision of it is derived not from the book of Revelation, but from the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm. And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Elijah and Moses glorified, so they kind of represent those who've departed already. And we see Peter, James, and John, and they're hitting the deck because the glory is so intense, but it's but Christ comes in glory, but it's not like this destructive thing where he's lopping heads off with a sword out of his mouth and all of that. So that's the vision of it, the Mount of Transfiguration. And the, the theology of it is more focused on 1 Corinthians 15, where at the end of this age, we pass through a judgment, but finally into the end of the ages, yeah. um, where God is all in all and Christ is victorious and eradicates all evil in the universe, including Satan, apparently. Yeah. You know, there can be no, there is a time coming when there will be no evil. And so what does that mean, right? Yeah. So is Satan... A thing, a being, a, a, a deity, an, an ethereal presence. Is it something I'm creating? Like, what? What is that? Because, like, for Peter to be Satan is a snake. Satan um, in Revelation, I think it's like seven or twelve, or maybe it's twelve seven or one of those. Like, Satan's a, a dragon, and then a snake. Like, what the heck is Satan? Because again, for me, Satan is that Dante's Inferno pitchfork thing, which is not also probably accurate in any way shape or form yeah well we might even have to say that the idea of satan develops right within the scriptures so it's not a uniform image or vision or function but uh, so i want to start out by saying that in the bible our whole idea that satan is the fallen angel lucifer who then leads the armies of uh, of the kingdom of darkness um that vision is very thin biblically like there's not actually, we read so much into some of these passages. So we've got an Isaiah passage, which is not actually addressing Satan. It's talking about a king. Um, it's talking about an emperor who's, who's raised himself up. And he's, he's like this bright morning star who's going to crash to the earth. It, nowhere in there does it say that it's a, it's a fallen angel or anything like that. 
it's it's a judgment of a particular king. So too in Ezekiel, I think it's the king of Tyre is mentioned. And we've applied that to Satan. And we're like, well, this is about Satan. Nowhere does it say that. And so then suddenly you're like, well, wait a minute. Where do we get an ontology of Satan from the Bible? And, and there's just not a lot going on there. Ontology means being. Right. I'm um, In the early church, they began to resist the idea that this is even that being is quite the right being or entity is quite the right way to refer to Satan. Satan is, is a function. Um, it's we're literally the accuser, the accuser. And, um, and so it seems to be that this accuser is given voice is given persona in the Bible. Like let's say when he's, when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness or through Peter What's going on there? Oh, it's it's not just an accuser, but it's an opponent, an opposing voice, the accusing voice. It's real, but what does real mean? <laughs> um, does real mean a real being? Or and so I like how Brian Zond has really. Uh, he, he's the guy you should be talking to about this because, but we've we've worked this out together a lot, and he would say it this way that the Satan, we just say the Satan because it, it's given the, um, you know, there's an article in the Greek, but it's same with God, you know, it just, it, the article in the Greek makes it a name sometimes. But he would say that the Satan is less than a person and more than a principle. So if he wouldn't see Satan having personality like an actual angel or a human would or some sentient being. It's not, it's not that, but it's more than just personification of evil or a principle of evil. He would say it's a real phenomenon in this world that functions um, on a global scale to manifest the sins of humankind. In other words, if you think about, like, where did God create Satan? No, we created a phenomenon of evil that becomes bigger than us, possesses us, scoops us up. And you can use a good analogy from, let's say, Hitlerism, where the people of Germany generate this kind of spirit, this evil spirit that then begins to control them. Mm-hmm. And so you see it on a smaller scale in a mob mentality, right? When, when a mob gathers, something bigger than the sum of the parts is generated from them. And so maybe in the old days we would have said, well, they're evil, so it called in this evil spirit. And now maybe we're saying, well, really, what is the the root of this is human sin. We're generating this yeah. evil spirit that takes on a life of its own and then turns on us. And that's how my son, when he was nine, described what he was seeing in terms of uh, of demons. So let's say you're an addict and out of your addiction, you or out of greed or out of fear, you generate this spirit that then takes, really begins to rule you and hold you in bondage. In that sense, does it matter? <laughs> so what I don't want people to hear is that I don't believe in Satan or demons. Of course I do. I've dealt with them all my life. I'm just questioning our narrative for their backstory. And I'm saying our, the biblical narrative is, does not support the mythology we've generated largely. Um, and why does it matter? It matters because 
there are there are ways of helping people become free mm. that are abusive <laughs> and don't really free them and there are ways of helping people that can actually nurture them and not re-traumatize them so that's why i'm saying yeah while while i believe my 12 step step brothers and sisters they're right when they're say they're wrestling with their demons but how are they doing it ah oh, they're doing it through surrender to the care of a loving god we're not having exorcisms they are doing their um, fearless moral inventory and confessing their sins and, and they're in community. And, and that actually is working to set them free in ways that we had hoped we could just cast out. I think that was a big problem. We thought if we can just identify this thing and yell at it and then, then it'll leave and they won't be under this obsession or oppression anymore. And frankly, that, that's pretty rare. Yeah. Your son's definition, and I'll find the quote and I'll like put it in the beginning. I won't, you, you said it on multiple places. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, it's worth the effort for, for someone else to try to find. I won't, I won't make you rehash it here. I can say the one sentence and, and he just said like, uh, demons are created by humans out of the ashes of war, the tears of those who are afraid and the stuff people wants want that doesn't belong to them. Then they take on a life of their own and turn on you and torment you. And yeah, that yeah. was his exact word. Is that how he usually speaks? Because that was no. the part that blew me away. Like when I heard you say that, I'm like, I, I have an 11 year old that doesn't talk like that. Like, no, he was nine at the time, and that's absolutely not how he talks. It was out of the blue. I'm like, well, who told you that? And he said, Jesus. And I'm like, when? Just now. So, <laughs> and it flowed like it flowed. He wasn't like composing something. He had made, you know, he's playing with Lego or something. Mm. And, and he's just, just absently speaking. Thing. Yeah, while well, he builds. Yeah. yeah, and then when I presented that to people like Brian Zond and Michael Harden, I mean, who are kind of experts on this, that I mean, their hair just stood up on end because they're like, we've never heard what we believe already articulated so clearly mm. by anybody. Yeah. And uh, there's a Girardian element to it for those who study Rene Girard. There's, you know, all of that stuff. It's quite. So it was a moment, right, where it shifted my thinking and made more of sense what we were already being led to do, yeah. which was the inner healing work. One of these questions, and this is, so I'm not real good on the verse of, you know, second temple literature, you know, first temple, yeah. like, I'm just not there. One of the questions, though, does intrigue me. So the question is, how do we factor in views of demons and their origins, like in, in, in reference to second temple literature? And I'm not even really sure what that question means. At yeah. all, either, but a lot of people seem to think it was an applicable question. I just don't even know what it means. Okay, I can tell you fairly simply, <laughs> uh, studied enough to be able to reduce it. First of all, what we mean by Second Temple is Herod's Temple, and their t Second Temple Judaism would be uh, the teachings of rabbis during the time of Herod's Temple, which is the one Jesus okay. was okay. in. One of the problems with that very statement is it assumes a second temple judaism when in fact don't you remember there was pharisees there were sadducees there were zealots the there scenes. were the scenes mm -hmm. all of that and we're not talking about one generation we're talking over a period of time so there isn't a second a, a single second temple position on this second we should not assume that jesus adopts second temple judaism <laughs> he he's come to overthrow it and he's very subversive in many ways when he's addressing the other rabbis that said i'll give you one example when we talk second temple judaism sometimes we're referring to mythologies 
that were adopted in the intertestamental period mm-hmm. in books like Enoch and Esdras and, and others. And so within those books, you start getting, and there were, I mean, Enoch was, was not a Bible book. It was not what we even now call apocryphal, but it was a very popular book during that time. And people were reading it, and Jude even refers to it, although Paul refers to the hymn to Zeus twice, so don't take too much from that. <laughs> but in some of that literature, you have different mythologies. I'm going to amalgamate them into one story for you very quickly. And, and then we'll ask ourselves, really? <laughs> we want to adopt all of that? And on what basis are we adopting part of it? So in this story, you have anywhere from two up to six Satans. And at least one of them begins to tempt a brand of angels that is mentioned once in Daniel called the Watchers and is in that Noah movie with Russell Crowe, the -hmm. Watchers. Mm -hmm. So these Watchers are in heaven and Satan or some Satans tempt them to come down to earth and to have sex with women, human women. So these some of the Watchers come down and they procreate with women, and these become the Nephilim. And so then we have the Nephilim, and uh, these are like giants in the earth, and their superpowers and all of that. And in this mythology, where the Bible says human violence ruined the earth, and that's why we had the flood, in this mythology, it's actually the Nephilim who ruined the earth. And so Mo- Noah comes along, and he's praying to God, Lord, deliver us from the destruction of the world by these Nephilim. So in, in, in the Bible, um, God is doing a recreation of a ruined world. But in this mythology, he's not. What he's doing is he needs to drown the Nephilim. Yeah. And he ends up drowning everyone. So then the Nephilim drown all of them. So I don't know why people are still looking for them in Hillary Clinton or something. That's like, <laughs> unbelievable. Can I just say that there... There's no Nephilim around. <laughs> Read your Bible. <laughs> so, in and fact. certainly not in, in one of your American political parties. Like, come on. <laughs> so, the Nephilim drown, but what happens is when they drown, their spirits appeal to God not to send them to Tartarus, which was where the Greek gods like Zeus and those guys when they defeated the Titans, they bound them up in Tartarus. Yeah. All right. So now we've got, we've got these spirits, the spirits of the drowned Nephilim begging God not to be sent to Tartarus, which Peter mentions once. He's borrowing their mythology. So now we're in a big mess. So the, the spirits beg God, please don't send us to Tartarus. So God has mercy on one-tenth of them. He sends 90% of them to Tartarus, and he sends 10% of them to the earth, and that's the demons. Okay. All right, so I'm going to go with my son on this one. <laughs> that, what he describes seems a lot more like even what we would see in the Bible. So does Jesus casting out demons verify a literalist view that says these are fallen angels or the second temple view that these are 10% of the spirits of the drowned Nephilim? Um, no, it just means... In the worldview of people in the first century, they identified certain maladies and addictions and so on with demonic spirits. Mm -hmm. 
Now, even then, I'm I'm not I'm okay to call them demonic spirits. I just don't know what that means. Right. I, do, I don't believe it's a disembodied angel taking over you and controlling you. But somehow, an unclean spirit. Uh, what would be an unclean spirit? It would be my compulsion to act out in addictive behavior. I think that would be fair to call it an unclean spirit. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and then then the question is, but when Jesus drives them out, like, is that, is he even doing what the exorcists do? It seems to me he's just speaking to people. And I love the story of, of Legion <laughs> because I think when Jesus says to the gathering demonic, what's your name? He's not asking the demon to identify himself. He's asking the guy what his name is. <laughs> he's humanizing this fellow. And, uh, but then this, this, this voice pops out as like, we are Legion, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, the human psyche is amazing. Yeah. It's giving voice to something there that may even have been now bigger than that guy. And I don't, I don't entirely get it. Would it be fair to call um, chemical imbalances the same thing in demons if we were to rewrite things today? Like, would you put those two in the same categories? I don't think always, but maybe sometimes, you know? Mm. Like, I just wouldn't, I've been bit <laughs> by labeling too easily, right? And so, but I do want to give you an example of where modern psychology is has explored this. So I was talking to a, to a counselor who works with everything from sex addicts to uh, children who are having showing signs of being predatorial. And so she says, I, I said, like, so what happens when you get like a six-year-old that's starting to molest other children? Does anything work on that? Mm. And she said, well, one thing seems to. And that is when you personify the impulse. So let's say a, a little child has an impulse to molest his sister. And you personify that impulse and you say, let's give that impulse a name. So we'll call it, you know, nasty or something. Okay, so when nasty comes, you feel like you need to do something to your sister. Yeah, I do. Okay. Can you feel when nasty is coming? Yes. Oh, so even before you're doing something, you can feel nasty coming? Yes. Okay. So to see how you're externalizing the evil. And then she says, now what are some of the, the weapons we could use to protect you from nasty? This is like secular, secular psychology doing spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. And what we would maybe say from our old Christian point of view is, oh, she's discovering the reality of demons and, and, the, and the reality of, of spiritual weapons. It's like, well, no, she's using a metaphor. And so was Jesus. And so was Paul. And so was, yeah. you know. And we know this because in Ephesians 6, he identifies what the weapons are. It's like truth. Yeah. Hey, yeah. You know, you don't have an invisible sword. You have, you have truth. <laughs> yeah. Use, so that, that's an interesting yeah. approach. So one of the things that I've always struggled with in demons, and one of the scriptures I always come back is, so Jesus casts out demons into like the pigs, the pigs run off the cliff. And that makes no sense if we're personifying something that I'm personally struggling with, like something inside me. So what the heck is leaving me and going into the animals? 
can animals even be demon possessed? Is that even a conversation that that is a real one? Does that make any sense at all? I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've little idea of what what's going on in in that story and why it's told that way, except that we know that the Gadarene area was occupied by Roman soldiers. So the idea of legion is, seems to be there's there's a a, a centralizing of, of a regional evil into this man. And when it's released from him, where does that evil go? And it seems to go into pigs, which Jews had no business raising. <laughs> you know, like, so I don't, I don't know if these are, are these Gentiles raising the pigs? Is it Jews raising the pigs for the Roman legions? Well, you know, and so this gets really murky in the sense that you could have an individual who is demonized by their own stuff, but let's say it's a kind of imperial chaos and violence that's happening and that it's not just him, that it's, you know, so, so this chaos is released from this guy and then it like enters the pigs. I think anyone who knows for sure what that means is lying, you know, like (laughs) I, I think let's be humble. And I, I think, I think this is a good approach is let's go to the gospel stories that become problematic. So, what is it? And, and we don't have answers. We, we, we have more questions. So a good one is, who is talking to Jesus when he's being tempted in the wilderness? Are these ideas, are these global ideas of domination and glory that di- want to divert him from the cross? And he, tell, he tells his disciple the temptations he had faced. And he said, those temptations, that impulse to bypass the cross and the way of the cross in order to attain my king, that's the Satan. Mm. It doesn't mean that the guy in red, the red suit came. It could be ideas that are presented. Michael Harden says, but maybe we could even call it Jesus potential shadow side. That is when Christ becomes human, he actually assumes human flesh fallen human flesh in order to overcome it. So when, when in, in the incarnation of Christ, the potential for him to disobey his father presents itself. The temptation for him to abandon the way of the cross presents itself, and he overcomes that and eradicates it. So that, that'd be one possibility. So, so that's an issue. The pigs are an issue. Another issue is like, what's the deal with him calling Peter Satan? And then is this same Satan, the prince of the world, that Jesus says he drove out on Good Friday. Now the prince of this world is driven out. What's that mean? Driven out of where? The world? Mm. So then what are we worried about now? And yet you've got Peter in his epistle saying, well, Satan's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So on the one hand, you have two different theologies there. Yeah. John is saying that the cross drove out the prince of this world. Peter's saying he's still prowling around. Are they even talking about the same thing? So what I'm trying to do right now is I am problematizing our harmonizing yeah. of all these passages into one into one vision. They just don't harmonize so easily. So on my list of people that I want to talk to one of these days is, is Michael Heiser because of his work that he's done on like the divine council. The first, I remember the first time I read that, I was like, that does what? Like just all of that doesn't make any sense. But where does a concept of Satan fit into a divine council? Or would it be fair to say that in that culture, in that context, it's in the divine council? Like, or, or no? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's all coming just from the story of Job. And it's a story. 
Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, would we say literally that the fallen angel Satan, who's apparently whatever, walks in and out of the presence of God, sits on the council of God, gets to challenge God like that and make bets with him? And it's like, no, that don't li- if we literalize that, uh, I think we're in back into silly territory. But the function of the Satan in that story is to, is to say, where does the accuser show up? Well, in the mythology, he shows up in, in the presence of God to accuse Job. In actuality, he shows up in the, th- in the friends yeah. who begin to accuse him. Yeah. And, and in his wife and in Job who begin to accuse God himself. Yeah. And so the thing is, I'm not averse to mythology. I, I think it delivers truth in ways that just always speaking in concrete terms cannot do. However, the problem is they didn't literalize this stuff back then. We did it. You know, we became literalistic in modern times. So it's a modernist problem of reading these stories so literally. I don't even believe Dante thought literally. Dante's not the problem. He's writing a poem to apply cosmic imagery to real world politics. And then we come along hundreds of years later and literalize it and then blame Dante, right? And so (laughs) Dante would probably go, what, like, what the hell are you doing with my poem? Have you completely missed the point? And (laughs) as would the author of Job, right? Or, (laughs) and so um, I think about that and I think myth can help us. So myth, if we understand what myth is about, Myth tells us how things came to be. The myth of Genesis 1 is not about a science lesson. It is, a, it is a, the truth of how the world came to be. It came to be through a loving God who creates a place for us to live. How does evil come to be? Well, Paul reflects on Genesis 2 and 3. Paul's reflection is that it's through one man that sin entered the world, not through the serpent and not through the woman. So that's interesting. And so it's about how sin came to be, how death came to be, and all of these things. And and so we just have to learn how to read these according to the spirit rather than the letter. Yeah. And fundamentalism got hung up on the letter, just mm. like the Pharisees. I want to ask two questions. One of which is just way out of left field. And and if and if it's not a good question, you tell me and I'll and I'll pivot to something else. But before I get there, no, I'll just ask that question. So what is it when we have someone worshiping Satan. So if, if Satan is something that is like an accusatory spirit, something that I'm able to manifest, you know, a bad part of a part of me that's me that I need to learn how to claim and, and, and you know, surrender, give to God, you know, get, get healing with. What is it when people are literally setting up churches that worship Satan? Like, what are they worshiping and how does that relate to the Satan of the Bible? Or are those two entirely separate things? Yeah, I mean, it's entirely separate things. My friend, Ken the Satanist, who became Ken the Christian Satanist, Hmm. (laughs) who then found Satan to be redundant, um, he said, you need to understand that at least the the Satan worship he was into had nothing to do with the Satan of evangelical biblicism. For them, Satanism was about the um, autonomy of the self basically saying, I am God. And in that sense, very biblical. What is the Satan doing in in the story of the fall? It is Adam asserting autonomy so that he can be godlike 
without reference to surrender mm. to the living God. I am God in that model. And that's what modern Satanism generally purports to be. Mm. It basically says I, we, reject, we reject this idea of surrendering to God because I am God. And so it's an assertion of absolute autonomy. Now, you might have dabblers who are playing around making up their own little thing, and you know, but that, that's not authentic Satanism hmm. today. The correlation to Satan, Beelzebub, whatever word you want to use, and hell, or Gehenna, or Hades, or Sheol, or whatever we want to give it, do those two belong together the way that many fundamentalists have put them together where, you know, one is in control of that because, and the reason I ask is my view of hell, I'm certain is heretical. And maybe it's not like, I think that hell is something that I'm actively creating when I choose to voliciously make actions that break shalom. And like that, like I'm generating hell. Yeah, That's what I think. Not that I'm going somewhere, but that I'm creating something that you and I are both experiencing and it's hellish. Or I could do the opposite, which would be the kingdom of heaven. And with the way that I view hell, I really struggle to figure out how Satan has anything to do with that outside of my actions. So I'm curious, biblically, what does Satan or any of those other words you want to put on Satan or, or, or demonic influence have to do with hell? Yeah, well, even within the Bible... Um, the word Gehenna that we typically translate into hell is not used uniformly. So, for example, perhaps, so the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom was outside of Jerusalem, and so Hinnom, or Gehenna, in Jeremiah's time, represented the destruction of Jerusalem by foreign armies. That's Gehenna. That's hell. Jerusalem under siege, on fire, eating their own babies because they're starving to death. That's, that's hell. And they had generated it in that sense through, through rebellion. And then in the intertestamental period, they begin to adopt an idea that hell is like the afterlife and it's the fiery inferno. And that's in Judaism, but they're borrowing heavily from, let's say, from, from Greek mythology, mm -hmm. Greek mythology of Hades there. And in that sense, Hades is both the place of the dead in the underworld, but it's also the ruler of the underworld. And you've got, so late in, in the early church, they've got arguments between Hades and Beelzebub about whether to let Jesus into Hades, because if he goes there, he might rescue everyone, right? So you got that. But then you got the gospel of Matthew, Jesus talking about Gehenna. And there it's like, ah, hard to tell what he's talking about. It, it could be to do with a final judgment or something like that. But then in James... And this connects, you're using it more like James does. Instead of thinking of Gehenna as a future afterlife destiny of punishment, James is talking about it as a kingdom. And he says, when slander comes out of your mouth, it's your tongue is set on fire by the flames of Gehenna. In other words, when I slander somebody, I am participating in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Gehenna. And what Paul calls the kingdom of darkness in Colossians chapter 1. So that's quite different then, right? So you got a whole range from Jerusalem burning to an afterlife judgment to the kingdom of darkness uh, active in me today as I participate in evil. If you go with that James model, which I could also then call a Seth model, 
Um, I didn't know there was a James model. I feel good about this. You have no yeah. idea how, how <laughs> now I'm going to go back and read James, but yeah. 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 So you instinctively had it right. So, so connect James use of Gehenna with Colossians use of kingdom of darkness and then say, okay, if we're going to use Gehenna or hell as a metaphor for the kingdom of darkness, which I participate in and generate through my sin, then we can also use one of those models of Satan as Satan is the phenomenon of evil in the kingdom that I generate through my sin hmm. or I and we, because there's this corporate element to it. That's huge. Right. Which we might call principalities or, okay, let's say nationalism sure. as a principality is a kingdom in competition with Christ and the way of Christ. And in that sense, nationalism then becomes an example of both the Satan and of the kingdom of hell. Hmm. And we generate that and we participate in it. And then we are tormented and bound up by that. And Christ has come to expose that, to drive it out and set us free from it. Hmm. To me, then, the, the mythological language isn't a threat. You just have to know what you're kind of talking about. How prescient is that as a depiction of the planet that we live on today in many? Yeah. Yeah. Just totally. that last four sentences that you said there. Yeah. Gracious. Um, let me pivot a bit. So at the beginning, the, the words you wrote down, the word I wrote down that you said is with your book, because again, haven't read it. You said it's dealing with a pastor and his demons. So yep. I want to spend a bit of time just in the next 10, 15 minutes that I've got you. What are you getting at with that? Like, pastors and their demons like because again i'm 100 percent ignorance here like yep. where, where are you going with that like what's kind of the, the narrative without yeah, giving the book so, away <laughs> well i can give this much away that when i say that he's dealing with his demons and that he has to pass through hell to do so mm. that now we're using mythological language but in the context of the novel which is really drawn from real life suffering of people i love by demons in his case it would be demons the demons are memories of harm that he has caused and harm that's been done to him that has rooted into his heart as shame and he's tried to cope with his actions and even the ways he's been victimized his way of coping with that is through self-will which only makes it worse cuz that's actually the root of our whole problem. Yeah. Self-will got us into this problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's Satan as self-will, you see? And so his demons are like shame, but they manifest to him in certain ways through visitations of those from his past. And so in that sense, it's a little bit like <laughs> my, my son, Dominic, he said that you, this novel, it's sort of like an effed up version of the Christmas Carol by Dickinson. <laughs> um, and so he's got to face his fears and his shame and all of that. That's what I mean by wrestling with his demons. So in the context of a novel, you can personify that a little bit, although it's not like Dante's sort of personification. Yeah. It's connected with people. Yeah. And um, so there's a heavy element to this. The idea that passing through hell means the fire of the love of God that cleanses us of those demons. Mm. That's the love of God feels like hell to those who must pass through it. Yeah. to face who they've been, what they've done, what they've experienced. And the way out is through surrender and letting go and forgiveness. Mm. And question is, can this guy do it? And mm. who will oppose it? Who will help him? And all of that. Yeah. When you say the love of God that way, and I'm going to borrow from C.S. Lewis. So I've been reading 
the books with my daughter, my youngest daughter. And so we're reading the original one, like the, uh, the magician's nephew, I think where the kids yep. are still going in and out. And there's a part in there and the way that you describe the love of God really reminds me of the part where Aslan's singing creation into being, I don't know if you remember those books or not, but I, it's just, yep. we just read the chapter a few nights ago and for everyone else, they're like, this is the worst song I've ever heard, like nails on a chalkboard and to all the kids and people that are partaking in the, the splendor they're like, this is the best song I've ever heard. And then the result right. is they can hear things. They have ears to hear. And the other people that that are going through hell just don't have any ears to hear. But when I hear you describing the love of God, the, the fire of hell there, for some reason, it, that draws me. That's, that's exactly right. And, and it's sort of like our orientation towards the love of God determines whether we experience his love as warmth and protection and comfort or fiery torment and darkness and storm, sort of like, the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites in the wilderness in their orientation toward the pillar of fire. Yeah. It's the same pillar. Yeah. They're having a different experience of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And Lewis picks up on that really beautifully. It's also the gospel itself. So Paul will say the same thing sort of as Lewis does while Lewis, Lewis is (laughs) drawing from Paul. I think when he said that the gospel to some, it's a fragrant aroma and to others, it's the stench of death. Yeah. So same idea, right? Yeah. Two orientations to the same truth, but you experience it as salvation or as condemnation in our minds. Yeah. Uh, when in reality, this is the love of God. And I'm very hopeful that the love of God is effective in mm. transforming even the hardest heart. Mm. I want to ask you one last question. I've asked it of everyone this year, I okay. think. So if you were to try to wrap words around the divine, the concept of the divine, and explain that to someone, what would you say? Yeah, um, the way I say it, and this is typically how I share the gospel, I would say, if there's a God, and I say if not as a doubt statement, but as a faith statement, because I don't prove these things in a courtroom or a laboratory. Mm. So if there is a God, that God is infinite love. And I might add today, and a mercy that endures forever for my Muslim friends, the all merciful one. Mm. And then I would say, and if you want to know what that love looks like, instead of just impose, you know, infusing your own broken notions of love. If you want to know the reality of what that love looks like, we look at the person of Christ who embodied it uh, perfectly. And we watch how it comes into clearest focus at the cross where Christ reveals the divine to be self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. Mm. And then uh, that comes with an invitation. Like we're invited to experience that and to experience that is eternal life. Mm. It's not heaven when you die someday, although that could be an extension of it. But right now in this life, the most broken people I know, although we're not broken, your shirt says, um, the, the, those who, <laughs> you know, the, the, those who struggle on a daily basis just to get out of bed and live another day with their demons, they know eternal life when they experience that love and it's transformative character. It just verifies the reality of the divine for them. For those that can't see the video that aren't subscribers on Patreon, the shirt that Brad's referencing is that you're not broken shirt that I have. So this is specifically because um, I don't know if you can see the rainbow or not on there. Like when people tell people that are gay, that they were, they're broken or they're unreconcilable. 
Yep. That's what I mean. Like that's that's yeah, that's yeah. entirely a lie. <laughs> that's entirely a lie. I um, I get that. Yeah. 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 Though I do have it in Nana Rainbow. It doesn't matter. Um. So plug the places. So you have a, you have like you've had like seventeen books come out this year, and that's an exaggeration, but that's what it feels like. So where do you want people to go? What do you want them to get? Click on, read, listen to. Like where do you, where would you send people to, Brad? Um, right now, I'd send them to Amazon to pick up the Pastor, a Crisis book with Paul. They can also find my other books on Amazon, but they should search Bradley Jersack, not Brad necessarily, because mm. it didn't merge those two very well. I've written a recent book called In, mm-hmm. Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb, that I'm uh, doesn't have the traction I'd like to see, considering it's, I think, an important work on inclusion mm-hmm. that says we don't need to minimize or ditch Christ in order to see that the love of God is wider, higher, higher, longer, and deeper than we yeah. ever could grasp. So so that's the two I'd plug right now, mainly on Amazon, or you can visit me at bradjersak.com, or I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. All the places. As, as, as Brad Jersak, yeah. <laughs> There's only Bradley on, on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks again for sharing your Saturday afternoon with me, literally at the drop of a hat. I appreciate it so, so much. Yeah, yeah. my pleasure. Yeah. It was yeah. fun. Upon further listening to this as I edited it, my heart is so warmed when Brad kind of connected my views on hell in a way that I hadn't considered, probably because of the books that I read, that I've connected James to some other parts of the gospel. And I've been digging into that, and I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you all at a later date about that. But I would be remiss if I didn't thank the patrons of the show for actually producing the show. This show is recorded and edited in my basement but produced and paid for by the patrons of the show. I would love to count you among them. Whether you have edited your pledge recently, which many of you have, or if you're new to the community, thank you so very much. It means more than you know and continues to make this thing be a thing. Consider supporting the show through the merchandise as that money again is being donated. A very special thanks to Young Oceans for giving me permission to use your music in the show. Guys, I want to reset some context there. So you can follow the Spotify playlist for all of the music used in these shows. And I believe someone has actually converted that also into an Apple music playlist, though I don't know how to find that. But a lot of these artists, so I don't pay for these. They are giving this because they believe their music matters. And I think hopefully they also agree that the conversations here matter. But I need you to consider supporting them. So stream their music. Like they get paid small amounts for that. But maybe also track them down. Anyone that's been on the show prior. And engage with their music. Tell some friends about it. Support them. Because really in these times that we're in right now, they're not doing what they normally would do. They're not touring and all that stuff. And that really affects them. So consider supporting not only Young Oceans, but anyone that's been on the show past. If you're like, man, that music, that hit me. That music was something. I'll talk to you next week. I hope that you understand how amazingly beloved you are. Be blessed.